This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin our study this morning. Father, we're so thankful that we have a salvation that is complete, that is sufficient, and that could only be accomplished by one who was both fully God and fully man, a salvation that has left nothing undone, no sin unpaid for, no problem unresolved, a death on the cross that truly paid it all. Father, as we study more about our Lord Jesus Christ, his sufficient work on the cross, we pray that we may come to understand this in greater ways and God the Holy Spirit would impress it upon us and the implications of it in terms of our living for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. And I've titled this from enmity to amity. Amity, if that's not a word you're familiar with, is a word that expresses friendship, the idea of closeness, the removal of a barrier, which is what happened at the cross. One of the most significant doctrines in all of the, in all the New Testament is a doctrine of reconciliation. It's not only one of the most significant doctrines in Scripture, it is a doctrine that is most often confused, misrepresented, and misstated. In fact, this is a doctrine that is often misstated in, in numerous hymns and uh, also by numerous uh, theologians and pastors who uh, haven't studied the doctrine in depth. There really aren't that many passages to talk about reconciliation. In fact, the Apostle Paul is the only writer in the New Testament that talks about reconciliation. So it is distinctly a Pauline development. In fact, there's not even a word related to reconciliation in the Old Testament other than the concept of peace, and it is the peace offering in Leviticus that gives us a picture of reconciliation, but that word, a, a Hebrew word for reconciliation is not found. Now, you may look through some English Bible and find a uh, one or another that uses reconciliation in the Old Testament, but um, sometimes, uh, for example, in the King James Version, it translates it a couple of times, but it should be translated atonement. It's just the normal word for atonement, uh, kafar in the Old Testament. Same thing with other versions. So you really don't have the concept of reconciliation expressed in the Old Testament. It is specifically a doctrine that is developed only after the cross. Now, why in the world would that be? 
Now, isn't that a good question? How come there's no sense of that in the Old Testament and it's left to after the cross? And I think that's because of the implications and the dimensions of reconciliation. It's just uh, one of those doctrines that has a lot of different facets to it. And we see this and we'll see this over the next a couple of lessons as we go through some of the key passages in reconciliation and the importance of understanding this particular doctrine and just in one sense in terms of our own mentality, our own understanding of our relationship to God and what that means to truly be reconciled to God, that God has reconciled us uh, to himself. And another aspect of that uh, uh, dimension to that is how it relates uh, to our own understanding and expression of, of the spiritual life, our own understanding and expression of our ongoing walk uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we really do have peace with God. When I was thinking about that this week, I thought, how many people really today really get upset about their relationship with God in the sense of being concerned that they have peace with God? We live in such a highly secularized culture, and our culture has been so profoundly impacted by moral relativism that I often wonder how frequently to people who are in their adolescent years or in their 20s or 30s, how frequently do they recognize, are they pricked by their conscience to recognize that, that there is something profoundly wrong with us and that this is wrong because it violates the character of God? Or has our culture just given us so many tools to suppress the truth and unrighteousness that this is something that is has been anesthetized through uh, activities, through drugs, through pl- all manner of pleasure, through the, the increasing stimuli that we see in life. You, you go to movies, you go to music concerts, and our senses are just bombarded continuously with, um, with all of the different, uh, different things that are designed just to keep, keep our attention on what's going on on the screen. You go to a lot of the new movies that are out today, the new films, and you see uh, that they are dominated by special effects and computerized graphics, and there's just always something going on. And the music is the same way, just designed to constantly provide that level of stimulation. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a, a film, a great little film, had won uh, several awards in Israel. It was a uh, Jewish film that uh, a couple of us went over to see at the Jewish Community Center. And it was, it was like the films that we saw back in the 30s and 40s. It was purely driven by the story. No special effects, uh, no, no music. I have no, no memory of any kind of musical stimulation there. It was just driven by the characters and the story. And because it was written well and the story was written well, you know, that's what captured the attention of the audience, not all this secondary stuff from, from these other uh, stimuli. But because our culture is so stimuli-driven, I wonder when do people stop and think about, do I really have peace with God, or does it even matter that I have peace with God? And yet when we come to the Scriptures, this is really the underlying or one of the two or three key underlying issues that the Scripture is designed to teach is that we need to have peace with God. 
because every human being is is uh, is at a state of enmity or hostility towards God in, at one experiential uh, experiential level. So Paul makes this shift here, as he's been talking about who Jesus is. Uh, he focused on who Jesus is, starting back in verse 15, as he goes into this section from 115 down through 27, where he is emphasizing the sufficiency of Christ. And I've pointed this out again and again, and this idea of sufficiency, I think, especially if you've been around here, but if you've been in some other other uh, solid te- Bible teaching churches, you've heard this phrase, the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of Scripture, the sufficiency of grace. Sometimes these phrases are repeated so much we we don't always capture how significant that is, that Christ is sufficient for whatever the question might be. His death on the cross covers everything. And what Paul is reminding the Colossians is that Jesus, because of who he is as being fully God, and because of what he did on the cross, is fully sufficient to solve the greatest problem we will ever face, and therefore he can solve every problem we face. He is the centerpiece for everything in life. We don't need something else. And so often what happens is we surreptitiously bring in something else. So I'm trusting in Jesus, but we're glad we have a hefty 401K. I'm trusting in Jesus, but... Um, but I've got a good job. I'm trusting in Jesus, but I have, I have good friends. And often we don't ever bring the, those additional things out in the open, but they're sort of hidden behind door number three, and we can always pop that door open and pull out something else if Jesus doesn't work because there's this sense that we don't really understand sufficiency. But what Paul is saying here is so profound because he is saying that what makes Jesus sufficient is also what makes Jesus the only way because there's nothing else, there's no one else that can do what Jesus did because, and, Jesus could on, and, and only Jesus could do it because Jesus is fully God in the flesh. And so he's, he unpacks this idea and, and it's, it's got a, a number of layers to it that he develops uh, we go back to verse 14 in the first chapter that it is in him, the son, that we have redemption through his blood. That emphasis on his death, it is through his blood, through his death on the cross, we have redemption, which is forgiveness of sins. There's this appositional clause there that I've gone over before. We'll go over it again in, in more detail as we get further into the, into the center of the second chapter something that was accomplished objectively at the cross, not in terms of, a, of, of the personal application to Christians as in our position in Christ, but something that's objectively accomplished toward man at the cross. That's something I'll develop a little more as we go through. It's just redemption is as much a part of the Godward package that is accomplished on the cross as reconciliation and, as we'll see, propitiation. Now, if you don't get anything else out of, out of Bible class, hopefully you'll at least have your vocabulary expanded a little bit. Someone was visiting a few weeks ago, a friend of mine, and made the comment afterwards, said, you know, I keep visiting your church and, and everybody brings their Bible. I need to bring a dictionary. 
Last week on the uh, 5th of July, there was a, uh, a news story showed up that uh, apparently I don't track the normal uh, news outlets on TV very much, but uh, Christiane Amanpour, who for many years was with CNN, is now with ABC, and uh, so there was a, uh, the topic on this week on ABC was on the Constitution and talking about the history and background of the Constitution. And in the midst of this interchange, uh, whoever she was interviewing made the comment that, well, Benjamin Franklin had said that he would hope, hope that when he died, maybe he would be uh, pickled in a vat of wine or something so that he could be brought back to life in 200 years and see how the Constitution was doing. And uh, she, she responded by saying uh, that that was, uh, oh, that was particularly perspicuous of him. Now, what happened was when she said, when they broadcast that, ABC decided they needed to put a graphic up, the word from the dictionary, the word, the pronunciation of the word, and the meaning of the word. And that generated a number of uh, news articles. I don't know what's worse, what that says about the, the media as a whole, that they felt like they needed to put a graphic up there for a word like perspicuous, or what it says about the lack of vocabulary skills among the average television viewer, or what it says about Christiane Amanpour because she misused the word. But at least when you come here, you know that you'll try to get a few things, a few new vocabulary words like amity and a few others as we go through this whole discussion on reconciliation, propitiation. I mean, these are words that are no longer used in contemporary translations of the Bible because they're afraid that the people who read the Bible won't know what they're talking about. So they use these pusillanimous, there's another good one for you, these little pusillanimous uh, words to try to express these profound concepts that uh, God used in his word. Paul was not afraid to use them. Many times Paul, we'll, we'll see one this morning, apokatalaso in the Greek is the word he uses for reconciliation here and in Ephesians chapter 2, and there's no evidence anywhere else in Greek literature of that word. The normal word for reconciliation was katalaso, and he adds a prefix. He just coins another word in order to uh, take the word and the concept of what Christ did at the cross to a more to a higher, greater level, and so uh, we understand something about the fact that as part of our imageness in God, since He is what did they call Jesus? John said, "In the beginning was the was the Word, it's communication." And so we have to have words in order to understand things. I think one of the greatest attacks of Satan on our culture is to minimize the importance of vocabulary so that often you watch some movie or something, all you hear is grunts and groans and the same old cliches over and over again to some rapper's beat. Nobody knows what anybody's saying. So we have to have an understanding of vocabulary because these nuances of different words are so important. Why is it that Paul uses katalaso in a number of places to re relate to reconciliation, and here he coins this new word, apokatalaso? Why didn't he just use a smaller word with only two syllables? You know, I can hear people, people saying that. It just... Uh, 
but he didn't. God the Holy Spirit is also working behind the scenes in terms of inspiration, and so this is important for us to understand these kinds of things because it relates to not just a sort of an abstract theological view of, of reconciliation, but but Paul goes through all of this because in the bottom line it should change how we live and how we think. And so we always have to remember how important it is to think biblically because this should change how we live experientially. Now just to remind you of our context here, as Paul has been talking about Christ and who he is, he has shifted starting in verse, um, really in verse uh, 18 that began the transition to what he did. Verse 18 talks about his relation to the church. He's the head or the authority of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the church from the context as we studied, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Not just in his deity, he had that before as the eternal God, but in hypostatic union as the God-man now, he is elevated, as the writer of Hebrews points out in the first chapter of Hebrews, to a position now above the angels. He had that in his deity from eternity past, but now it's in his humanity. He's elevated above the angels, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he is the one who is going to come and establish his kingdom. So he, the focal point is on the future that he will have Preeminence. And then last time we looked at this next verse, 119. For it pleased the Father, and that's in italics because it doesn't say that, have that in the original context. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And I pointed out last time that there are these two words that are used there, pleased and dwell. But it's this word, all the fullness, that technically, grammatically should be the subject. But that's used as a circumlocution. There's another one of those good words to take home. Circumlocution, that is a grammatical term. to You say something by going around it, like you circumvent something, you go around, you circumscribe. Circumlocution is a way of talking about something by going around it using another form of expression, similar to a euphemism. You don't want to say somebody died, they just uh, passed away. So that's a euphemism. A circum, it's a form of circumlocution. So technically, grammatically, the idea of the fullness should be the subject of both the verb to please and to dwell. But it's used that way because it's related to the fullness of deity, as Paul pointed out in Colossians 2.9, for in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead Bodily, it's so that word, all the fullness that is dwelling in him is the essence of God. And I pointed out last time that we have all the attributes of God are fully present, equally present in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are equal in essence, though they are three distinct persons. So this word, all the fullness, as a circumlocution, it's just really another way of saying the Father, but it's emphasized, it's saying it in a way to emphasize that the essence of deity is what it fully resides in Jesus as the God-man. And so that is still the subject of the verb, this, this focus on all the fullness, or actually it's God. I mean, when they translate it, the, the Father, they're, they're getting to the, end result of the term, it's God the Father. 
So he becomes, God the Father is the subject then of this action in 120, where we read, by him, and the him there refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, by him to reconcile all things to himself. So who's performing the action of reconciliation here? It's a little bit ambiguous, but it's God the Father that becomes clear when we compare this to other passages on uh, reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, 18 through 20, as well as Ephesians 2.16. God the Father is the one who is reconciling, performing the action. He uses Jesus' work on the cross to do it, and he's reconciling all things to himself, which is to God the Father. So, just to go through the verse so we understand what it is saying before we start looking at its implications and significance, Paul begins by saying it is by him, which is an okay translation, I prefer through him because of the grammar. It uses the dia plus the genitive there, which is the same form that we have over in Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Same grammatical construction. So it is through Jesus. Now, it's not clear at that point through his birth, through his life, through his death, but it becomes clear at the end that using the same kind of phrase, it's through the blood of the cross, another way of talking about his death on the cross, a circumlocution, his death on the cross. So it is through him that God the Father is going to reconcile all things to himself. Now, the word that is used here for reconciliation is the verb apakatalasso, which I pointed out a few minutes ago. It is a compound of the preposition apa and the verb katalasso, which is the normal word used for reconciliation in First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians 5 and other passages. It's an aorist active infinitive to express a purpose. This was the purpose of God to bring about this reconciliation. But by intensifying the verb with this preposition, it says it means to reconcile completely. Now, why would he, Paul do that? What did I say the theme of Colossians is? The sufficiency of Christ. Sufficient means that it's complete, it's enough. So Paul's going to talk about reconciliation in Colossians and in Ephesians, which are parallel, by using a word, coining a new word that is going to take reconciliation to another level of intensity, it's a complete reconciliation. He didn't leave anything out. It's all there. So we read that it, it, God, through Jesus, completely reconciles most things. Is that what it says? just want to see if anybody was awake. All things. Well, and then at the end of the sentence, in, in, in the English, you put it in the middle because that's where it fits grammatically, but in Greek you can throw it to the end because it's a sort of a secondary add-on idea. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, heaven and earth, where else do we see that idea? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Did he leave anything out? No, it's another figure of speech. It's a merism. It means like night and day, uh, everybody tall and short, everybody. 
where you use two opposites to express an idea of, of everything in between. It's, it's a completely inclusive term. So when Paul says he reconciled all things, he reinforces that meaning by saying whether things on earth or things in heaven. Anything else? Well, that pretty much covers it. That's everything. That's, that's animate objects and inanimate objects. Huh. Christ is reconciling inanimate objects? Why would he do that? Well, because even the, the earth itself is under condemnation and groans, according to Romans chapter 8. Groans under the curse. So there, there's an action here that takes place. God, through Christ, is reconciling all things. Just to make sure we get the point, it's things that are on earth, everything on earth and everything in heaven doesn't leave anything out. So now this word reconciliation, I'm going to come back to it in Ephesians 2.16 before we're done this morning, I hope. Ephesians 2.16, that he might reconcile, same word again, apokatalaso, that he might reconcile them both in one body. Now there the object is he's talking about the relationship between Jew and Gentile. And that there was a state, as we'll see, a state of enmity not only between mankind, Jew and Gentile, and God, but also a state of enmity existed between Gentile and Jew. And when Jesus performs the work of reconciliation, it is reconciling both all of mankind and Gentiles to Jews, all of mankind to God, Jew and Gentile, and Gentile to Jew, so that in Christ there's now a unity. And he puts to death the enmity, and that enmity that it's expressed there we'll come back and look at in a minute. So we see that he's reconciling all things, and there are four times that all things are mentioned in context. So just in case we forget what the all things are and want to limit it in some way, let's look back just a few verses, back to verse 16 and verses 16 and 17, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth. Doesn't leave out anything. Everything. There wasn't some amoeba out there that just kind of popped up due to a little electrical discharge. Uh, everything was created by him, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Now, that's important because this term principalities and power shows up again when we get down to uh, verse uh, verses 20 and following, the all things, whether things in heaven or things on the earth, it's all things. So the phrase that he creates, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, relates to the hierarchy among the angels both fallen angels and elect angels. So we read, for by him all things were created. And then, just to make sure we didn't lose it, Paul says again, all things were created through him and for him. And then in verse 17 he says, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So now when we get down to verse 20 and he reconciles the all things, the all things here have to be the all things of 16 and 17, which is everything in the universe. There's no molecule atom that isn't impacted by reconciliation. Now, what does reconciliation mean? What 
the core meaning alasso, even katalasso is a compound word. Kata is another Greek preposition. Uh, alasso is your, your root word, and it means to change a relationship between two things, an ex- exchange or a change, a transformation. Now, since this is in an, in an active voice, in the aorist active infinitive, what tells us is that the one who performs the action, which is God the Father, is actually doing something. It's not potential. It's not uh, hypothetical. But it emphasizes that something happens at the cross that changed the orientation of everything in the universe to God. Because at the fall the orientation of everything in the universe was changed to God. Now, does that mean that everything's saved? No. Does it mean that everything was redeemed? Romans 8, 20 following, Paul talks about the creation suffers under a curse, waiting the redemption that will occur when the sons of God are made manifest. That's not applied to the creation until Jesus returns. So, There's a change that takes place, but it's not a salvific change. It's not a change that actually saves or or redeems people in terms of its application, but it changes the orientation of everything that has been in this state of hostility toward God. Now, we're told how he does this by the next phrase, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And here we have a compound word from arene, which means peace, where we get the uh, feminine name Irene, and poieo, the Greek word to do. So Paul brings this compound together, uh, arena poieo, meaning, beca- meaning to make peace, to do peace, to make peace. And it's a prep- uh, participle. And it has the idea of either cause or means. It's, it's ambiguous in the Greek. It could be either one, I think, gets across the same idea, that he, it was through Christ that God reconciled all things to himself, either because he had made peace through the blood of the cross, the action of that participle precedes the main uh, verb idea, which is reconcile. So he reconciles either because he had already made peace at the cross or he reconciles when, or, or excuse me, by means of making peace to the cross. It is the peace of the cross that precedes the making peace because it's the peace, the blood of the cross, that the peace that is made through the blood of the cross that makes reconciliation possible. So let's define reconciliation. Two senses I want to bring out here. The first is in this paragraph. It is the work of God for man. Now, there's an element of reconciliation we'll see in 2 Corinthians 5 where we as believers are given the ministry of reconciliation and we go to people and the command is to be reconciled to God. That has to do with an experiential application in terms of the gospel. But this is talking about the objective aspect that is Godward. So it is the work of God for man in which God undertakes to transform man's position of hostility to peace. There's a change in orientation, an objective real change that took place at the cross where the human race's animosity towards God is changed. 
to change that position of hostility to peace in order to make possible and actual. There comes the second part of it, eternal fellowship with the righteous and just God. It doesn't make it a reality because Jesus died at the cross, but it makes it possible to make salvation a reality. Now, if you remember, this is where I'm going to start pulling some layers together here for you, that when I've talked about forgiveness, for example, back in uh, Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through the, his blood, the forgiveness of sins, I talked about the fact that we really have different ways in which we're, we experience forgiveness or that uh, forgiveness is accomplished at the cross. One is a legal forensic sense. It was fun the other day, as you know, I have a group of pastors and we meet together. We haven't met for about six months. We just started again. And we went through this on Friday, went through detailed, painstaking, word-by-word exegesis of Colossians 2, 13 and 14, relating it to forgiveness and recognizing that, that there are these different nuances that Paul pulls out and that there is a legal penalty that God assigned to the human race because Adam sinned. So we're under condemnation for sin. But what happens at the cross is that that's blotted out. Colossians 2.14 says that he took it away when he nailed it to the cross. And that means that it's in 33 A.D., not when you trusted Jesus. That is a revolutionary concept for a lot of people. When Jesus died, that certificate of debt that Colossians 2.14 talks about is blotted out. It's taken away, not when you believe, but at the cross. In other words, what we're talking about here is there is an aspect to what Christ did at the cross that removes that legal issue, that legal penalty. His substitutionary death pays the penalty for sin, period. It's not an issue anymore. But does that make, mean you're saved? No, because you and I are still born dead in our trespasses and sins. So we have to experience a positional forgiveness when we trust in Jesus And then as we grow as believers, we experience an experiential forgiveness. And we also have to forgive one another. So those are the four categories of forgiveness we see in Scripture. And that first one is what I've called a legal or forensic forgiveness. Well, what we see here with reconciliation is a comparable idea. That's how Paul is taking these threads and he's connecting redemption and forgiveness, which is that payment of that price to God. He's connecting that to reconciliation. And he's going to show how these ideas work together. So the next aspect of this definition is that reconciliation was accomplished forensically in a legal sense once and for all by Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, it applies also to each believer positionally, but only when we trust in Jesus as Savior. That's why Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 5, that that God was in Christ reconciling the world. You know, the world is is who Jesus died for over in John 3.16. God so loved the world. That that includes believer, unbeliever, everybody. So what we see is that there's this change relationship. He's reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. But that doesn't make him saved because then we're given the ministry of reconciliation to go out and tell people to be reconciled to God. And if we don't understand that there's these two different dimensions, one that is objective, fully accomplished, and Godward, 
and one that then becomes something that man has to do in terms of realizing it in his own experience, then we can get we can get confused. So all this is just saying that that reconciliation is God's work of changing man's status in terms of him, in terms of the law, his legal requirement. That's objective. And then there's a subjective or personal experiential application. So here we have a profound passage here in Colossians 1.20. By Christ, God reconciled, and his intent and purpose was to reconcile all things to himself. So he accomplishes that, which means, which feeds to the idea of sufficiency. He does it for all things. So there's nothing in your life, nothing in my life that gets dropped out. Now that's going to have great implications when you connect that idea back over to forgiveness. Because there's so many people who wander around with guilt. You got this load of guilt from your parents, maybe, or just because you have a sensitive conscience. There's some people like that who do. You know, you tell them, you accuse them of something and then take them into a uh, lie detector test, a polygraph, and they immediately fail because they're under so much guilt and conviction for something they didn't do that they can't even tell the truth about it anymore. They just have sensitive consciences. You know, some people just live under a guilt complex, and if you talk to a group of people and say, I know somebody here did this, they immediately think they did it whether they did, they, they did it or not just because they're guilty all the time. Reconciliation and forgiveness means that there's no basis for guilt. Even when we do something for which we are guilty, there is complete divine forgiveness. It's wiped out. These words that are used again and again emphasize that that's not the issue. Jesus took care of that issue, so there's no basis for living on a guilt trip and being motivated by a guilt trip. So that begins our orientation here to to reconciliation. But there are layers to this that are so important. And Paul writes, as I pointed out in the introduction, Paul wrote Colossians about the same time he wrote Ephesians, probably wrote Ephesians uh, first. So we have to look at that Ephesians 2 passage, which is so profound, and then go to 2 Corinthians 5 to understand this, this significance of reconciliation here because when we go through this trajectory of this letter, if we haven't fully unpacked this idea of redemption, the forgiveness of sins, connected it to reconciliation, then we get into the middle part of the second chapter, we're going to start stuttering a little bit and having a little difficulty fully comprehending what Paul starts developing at that point. So we'll come back next time and continue our study of this remarkable and significant doctrine of the fact that God has reconciled us to himself. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to get into this uh, important truth, how you have expressed the fact that we have peace with you because of what Jesus Christ did in the cross, at the cross. There is peace. There is a, a change in our relationship to you so that, that we can have a true, full, complete salvation because Jesus is sufficient and he is the only way. His sufficiency is unique because it's based on the fact that he is the unique person of all history and the universe. 
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is not sure of their salvation or certain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty. He'd had you in mind among every other person in human history when he was on the cross. He paid that penalty so you don't have to. It's removed. But the issue now is are you willing to trust him? And that is all that is necessary, is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. And at that instant, you experience positionally and really, truly, full peace with God, reconciliation, forgiveness, redemption. It is ours that can never be lost. Father, we pray that as we continue our study that we might think profoundly about what sufficiency means to each of us as we go about our daily lives and what the completeness of Jesus' work on the cross really means to us. And we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make this uh, uh, drive this point home in our souls and our thinking and that it might make a profound difference in how we think about you and how we live our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.